This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to the Back to You podcast. I'm David Spears, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I'm joined this week by David Bevan from ABC Radio Adelaide and political reporter Matt Doran in Canberra. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thank you, David. Well, we've got some... Good questions this week. We've got some tough ones too, so I hope you're both ready for that. It has been a week where the energy debate has come back on the agenda again, with one energy company boss warning of, well, huge price rises next year, and also growing pressure on the government, including from within its own ranks, to do more about driving down gas prices. Um, We've also got some interesting questions coming up too about what the government will now do to fix the budget if it's not going to touch the stage three tax cuts. We'll get to that one. But let's start on energy with a question from John. And John has, well, a bit of a lengthy preamble about the difficulty of achieving net zero, including in agriculture. His question, though, is how will we do it? Where is the investment in nation building, science and technology? Well, John, I'll I'll tee off on this before we hear from the others. Look, this government and the previous government, I'm sure, would both argue there's plenty of investment going on from them and from the private sector. Um, I mean, a quick list, projects like... Snowy 2.0, big pumped hydro project. There's plenty of money going into hydrogen uh, research, hydrogen hubs as well. Um, Andrew Forrest, uh, plus the government putting money in there. The Albanese government has a big rewiring the nation plan. This is the off-budget investment of about $20 billion in in low-cost loans to leverage private investment into transmission. Look, there are all sorts of things going on, but is it enough? And I suspect, John, you're um, suggesting that it probably isn't. Some of the estimates are that we're going to need to increase renewables investment ninefold to achieve net zero by 2050. Matt Doran, what would you say to John, who's, I guess, really suggesting here that we don't have a clear nation-building investment plan to get to net zero? Look, I think some of his concerns there are are well-founded because so much of the responsibility for this has has regularly been put onto the private sector. And I think that ties in with what we heard from the Alinta Energy Chief Executive, Jeff Dimery, during the week with that warning about uh, prices going up by 35%. He says part of that is because it's going to cost his company billions and billions of dollars to replace its coal-fired power stations and its assets in that sort of area and replace it with uh, renewables. There is a significant capital investment there from a private private company and therefore that cost has to be passed on to consumers. So that's kind of where we see this intersection between you know, government policy and, and the private sector and what it's uh, doing there. I guess one of the things that the federal government has been very keen to push is the merits of its climate bill. So enshrining that 45% emissions reduction target by the year 2030, mm, enshrining 43. that... Uh, 43, mm. sorry. Yes, enshrining that into uh, legislation. That was something that the government said was necessary to provide that investment uh, atmosphere or environment to ensure that companies feel like they can make those investment decisions, that they can Mm. start building these uh, renewable uh, power hubs and get that off the ground rather than dealing with uh, what what the the government had argued was was years and years of policy mismanagement. So it seems like there's more of a, certainly a focus on on creating that investment environment from a private sector, but beyond what you listed off there, Spearsy, with things like rewiring the nation and uh, some of those other 
projects that the government has invested in, it does seem like a lot of the pressure and a lot of the responsibility is being put on the on the private sector. Yeah, and, and ultimately someone has to pick up the bill for that, shareholders, customers and so on. David Bevan, I mean, the opposition's made a, a big deal about this and will keep doing so. Labor promised electricity prices would come down before the election. They said $275 saving. They're not talking about that anymore. What, what are your listeners, how are they feeling about where things are now going with increasing prices? Is this just something they do you think, willing to accept as part of the transition to clean energy, or are they starting to get a little concerned about it all? There, there is, amongst a portion of our audience, a willingness to to bear the pain because they think, well, there's going to be pain and we're prepared to cop it because for the for the greater good. You just need to move to renewables and save the planet. But you know, South Australia has been through this Again and again and again, this debate that has emerged just in the last two or three years at a national level, you know, really big increases in in power prices, the cost of moving from um, traditional fossil fuel power to to renewables. We went through this 10, 15 years ago. South Australia was was way in front in terms of the the big shift to renewables. And people, particularly in the East, used to make fun of South Australia and, you know, we had that big blackout, the statewide blackout, which cost us hundreds of millions of dollars. And there was a big debate, was that about renewables? And we, we were the butt of jokes. Well, indeed, it was it was seen as the warning sign of where the, the rest of the country should not go. But, ex- ex- <laughs> exactly. So South Australia, very much. Uh, for, for us, this is a, a broken record. And there'd be a lot of South Australians listening to the comments mate, that were coming out of Alinta saying, whoa, 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 hang on, guys. We've already shifted to renewables. There are times when South Australia is 100% running on renewable power. So why are we having to pay extra? Uh, that's It's time for other people to, to cop it. Get, getting back to that question about investment in alternative sources of power, the South Australian government just this week, the Premier and his infrastructure energy minister, they've been in Korea and Japan spruiking investment in their hydrogen precinct, which is in the Iron Triangle. It's Matt Doran's old stomping ground of Wyala, Port Augusta, Port Pirie. And Peter Malinowskis, the South Australian Premier, has promised to invest almost $600 million in a hydrogen precinct there. Now, that's a lot of money for a state like South Australia. Mm. There are some South Australians thinking, well, we don't, we're not even really sure what a hydrogen processing plant does. Earlier this week, we spoke to a, a chemist from Adelaide Uni, and he was saying, well, we're working on technology which would actually cut out the middleman so that you wouldn't need to do what Peter Malinowskis is proposing up in the Iron Triangle. And I put to him, well, look, does that mean we shouldn't be investing this money? And he said, no, we should. We need to be doing it. We've got to put a lot of horses in this race. Not all of them are going to cross the finishing line. Somebody's going to lose their shirt, but that's what happens when you transition from an old fossil fuel economy to a renewable one. It's going to hurt. Yeah, and look, Andrew Forrest is clearly one hoping he's not going to lose his shirt. He's pouring billions into this hydrogen dream. It, it, it is fascinating, though, that in, in industrial areas, you, know, you mentioned that Iron Triangle, um, Gladstone in Queensland, the government is holding out hope that hydrogen will be the saviour, that it will come along and help keep jobs going in those towns. We've also got the aspect this week of agriculture and how to reduce emissions there. Um, people might remember that at the Glasgow Climate Summit, the Morrison government signed up to net zero, but did not sign up to 
this methane pledge of reducing methane emissions by 30% by 2030. Labor at the time agreed with that position. Now it's heading towards signing this. It would not be an approach that involves tax or regulation, a requirement to reduce emissions, more an aspiration, it says, um, and it hasn't finalised this yet. But boy, Matt Doran, it, it certainly kicked off a, a fairly predictable line of attack from the coalition about um, how you actually reduce emissions amongst livestock. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I think they just opened up the top drawer of the uh, filing cabinet and pulled out some of the old attack lines when it comes to anything to do with uh, with tax. I love the fact that the the this discussion about uh, taxing when it comes to methane, which has been prompted by the debate across the Tasman uh, this week, it's been described as a burp tax. I quite like that colloquialism, even though it does sound mildly offensive uh, to our uh, audience's ears. But it is fascinating to see how that was tacked on to the side of this discussion about the global methane pledge. And Murray Watt, the agriculture minister, he was up in Darwin on Thursday and was questioned about it and was very keen to say and, and to point out that this this global methane pledge is a completely different issue to what they're discussing in New Zealand. It's not a binding commitment. The timing probably wasn't great for Murray Watt, though, was it, that this New Zealand announcement on the burp tax had just been made? Exactly. And he was very keen to say it's not going to result in, you know, caps being put on how many livestock farmers could have. It's not going to have any impact uh, along those lines, but that the uh, the government would be consulting quite widely with the agriculture sector before making any decision there. But yes, it does fuel that uh, that attack from the coalition straight away, and particularly the nationals, that this is an attempt to hit the agriculture. A industry. threat to the Aussie exactly. barbecue. A threat, a T-bone tax, they've called it, even though, as you've explained, there is not a tax, is not the approach they're, they're looking at. But look, it does raise a question about how you do actually achieve this. There's confidence within the industry that they can. I mean, boy, the um, Meat and Livestock Australia have already uh, embraced a target of carbon neutrality by 2030. So they're being even even more ambitious. But if you're going to reduce emissions amongst livestock, there's a big hope that seaweed, asparagopsis, and there's plenty of research and, and investment going on there, will will help reduce emissions from uh, beef cattle by replacing feed with this, this particular seaweed. There's development going on on various pharmaceutical options as well. So look, at this stage, it's you know at the phase of development I suppose scaling it up to actually reduce emissions across the entire herd is is the next challenge. But I, I'd be interested in what you two guys think of this because that response from the from Labor's uh, federal agriculture minister sounds to me like the sort of rhetoric we used to get from the Morrison government. That is, we don't need to be heavy handed. We don't need taxes. We can do this with aspirational goals. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly. Technology, not taxes. We can, you know, uh, encourage and invest in these technologies, and that will provide the solution. Well, I think that that, that it's indicative of the fact that Labor copped so much criticism from the coalition, and it still has wounds from this climate battle that it's been waging for many many years now that it does need to or feels like it needs to walk into this debate very, very carefully. I had Tim Watts, the Assistant Manufacturing Minister uh, on Afternoon Briefing yesterday alongside Matt Canavan, the National Senator, one of the most outspoken people when it comes to uh, anything to do with the energy sector and they were going hammer and tong about this very issue and I think Matt Canavan or no, I think it was Tim Ayres actually at one stage uh, pulled out the uh, 
uh, oh, we're going back to the $100 roast debate, are we? It just shows that this is, this is uh, the, the, the wounds are still, they're not even healing. They are still open there when it comes to how we discuss anything to do with energy and climate in this country. And I wonder how much uh, the, the political debate is actually out of touch with what the community expectations are, particularly when, as you've pointed out there, Spears, you've got people in the agriculture industry already making these quite ambitious uh, commitments only to have politicians allegedly advocating on their behalf going down a completely different route. Yeah, and it's interesting that the coalition's approach hasn't really evolved much since the Abbott days and you're right, Barnaby Joyce warning of the $100 roast and more recently Scott Morrison that the electric cars would end the weekend and so on. This talk about threatening the Aussie barbecue, you know, it is a tabloid over the top reaction but I, I, I just, I, I'm not sure whether that line of attack is still going to be as effective for them, particularly, you know, when we're not actually talking about a tax approach here, as we've discussed. We've got another question from Sebastian on the energy front as well. And it's an interesting one. How much of a role does the slow privatisation of the nation's electricity grid play into rising power prices? Is the shareholder being prioritised over the consumer? That's an interesting question. I mean, privatisations were done at the state level a, a while back, except in Queensland. David, has it, do you think it's made any difference here or, or not when it comes to the price pressures we're facing now? Sebastian asks a really good question that people in South Australia have been asking for more than 20 years, ever since ETSA was sold off by the Olsen government around about 1999. We were told when privatisation took place that we would get cheaper power. Power prices went through the roof. And then we had a RAND state Labor government who, as I said earlier, embraced renewable technologies and promoted it. We were way out in front of the rest of the country. And the, the two debates got mixed up. It was very hard to get a straight answer. Uh, are we paying more because we're in that early transition stage of renewables or are we paying more because they're private companies? Sometimes it was a little from column A, sometimes it was a little from column B. Yeah, I think that right now when we talk about the energy transition element of this whole thing, it's, it's worth pointing out that the private companies like AGL are moving at pretty much the same pace as the publicly owned ones in Queensland to transition out of coal. So th- there's not a big disparity now, but I think it's a really nuanced point you make there about the, you know, sometimes getting confused about what has impacted on prices. Yeah. Uh, For instance, there were times after South Australia had privatised its assets that the state-owned electricity utilities in Queensland were charging more for power. Than, than the privatised ones here in, in South Australia. But, well, here's, here's an example of how privatisation doesn't work, and there are lots of examples of it. I can remember talking to a fellow who used to work for the old ETSA, and um, he was was part of the new privatised power companies, and he said, we must not have an interconnector, another interconnector with the eastern states, because that will undercut the cost of power here in South Australia and make these companies unviable. We're going to lose a lot of employment, and it will be really bad for South Australia. The guy then went on to work for Business SA, and he was telling us, we must have an interconnector <laughs> with the eastern Funny states so we can happens. get all this cheap power to help create manufacturing jobs in this state and provide cheaper power for households. That's the sort of stuff that South Australians have been putting up with for the best part of 20 years. Good of you not to name names there too. Anyway, let's move to the uh, economy. We've got a question from Jack. Uh, Jack asks, we hear how governments are too afraid to put in place major tax reform, but what would this actually entail? 
Jack says, I know we rely heavily on income tax, so would the GST be increased instead? Land and super tax reform, perhaps, would this result in lower income tax rates? Or is tax reform mostly referring to the need to get the budget out of structural deficit by increasing taxes rather than cutting spending? That's a really interesting series of questions from Jack there. What would tax reform entail? Well, I guess, look, you can look at any of the many reports that have been done on tax reform in Australia. Most famous recently was the Henry Tax Review in 2010. It made 138 recommendations. Very few have been implemented. But, you know, we're talking about things like an emissions trading scheme, a mining super profits tax, yes, increasing the GST, road user charging, land taxes, and you could use that to get rid of inefficient taxes, things like stamp duties, the heavy reliance we do have on income taxes, you note there, Jack. And you could also then, yes, pay for services that Australians want. Matt, Doran, I, I suspect a big part of this question too is what stomach does the Albanese government really have for this sort of big bang tax reform? What, what stomach does any government have these days? Yeah, tax reform, uh, I mean, it, it certainly is not a topic that gets the uh, the blood pumping, although for some people it certainly does help them, uh, you know, congest a few arteries because of just how fraught uh, it has been. Uh, in the same same sort of way as climate change debate, it, it often results in political attacks rather than an actual sensible, level-headed discussion about the merits of proposals. But now would be the time, right, when a government is, you know, still, what do you call it, a honeymoon, whatever, they're riding high in the polls, they have political capital in the bank. You know, I'm not saying they're going to do it in this first budget. They're, they're clearly not going to be that reformist. But, you know, maybe in the May budget next year, this is the time to do something, isn't it? Well, it's certainly, yeah, it is a it's a, a much more helpful time to have that discussion rather than if you're in the the uh, the doldrums when it comes to polling or you're coming up towards an election and it starts to become a, a much more difficult uh, thing to talk about. I think what the the really interesting aspect of the recent debate around the tax cuts, the income tax cuts, which I think we'll get to uh, a bit later on, is uh, how that debate actually played out in the public eye. And you saw a number of economists coming out saying, okay. You're not going to look at the tax cuts for now, but this shouldn't put the brakes on having a broader discussion around tax reform. And there was actually a summit here in in Canberra held by the or run by the the Australia Institute, a left leaning think tank. Uh, it's Revenue Summit, and it had some pretty big names in the the economics sort of field. You had the former uh, boss of the ACCC, Rod Sims. You had uh, Bernie Fraser, former RBA governor, all giving their views on where Australia's tax system uh, needs work, and they were raising areas like. A, a resources tax. So looking at the huge profits that are driven from Australia's resources industry and looking at yeah, whether but they're or not, not particularly new ideas, are they? They're all there. They're not. Um, it's no. just a matter of you know, getting on with it. Yeah, exactly. And I think what the overarching message from people who are at that summit and more broadly uh, is that uh, governments shouldn't shy away from having this debate and it shouldn't use this, how the, the tax cuts discussion in the last couple of weeks has played out as a way to, to shy away from it. Because there are a whole range of areas which they can can look at the we know negative gearing in the past has been a political football we know that superannuation tax concessions have been a political football as well Malcolm Turnbull briefly floated an idea when he was prime minister at changing the the GST the consumption tax broadening the base or at least you know lifting the rate of it as well so it has been done before and it does seem to regularly get put in the too hard basket because tax can be such a, a tricky a tricky issue to find common ground on yeah, it's it's fascinating though, isn't it, David? How you know we had at the Jobs and Skills Summit, Ross Garno special invite, 
gives his keynote speech, says uh, windfall tax on uh, you know the big gas companies, and within hours you had the prime minister and treasurer shooting it down. You know these ideas don't seem to last very long, do they? During the election, the federal election campaign, our studio, like your guys' studio, studios all around the country, we had candidates and spokespeople coming through, and it struck me uh, that. The only when I look back on the campaign, the only two that I could remember that came up with serious proposals to raise revenue were the United Australia Party and the Greens. Okay, now nobody seriously thinks that either of those parties are going to end up running the country, and in fact, many people would be would be worried if they did. But that's not what the adverts for the UAP said in the in the newspapers. They said Craig Kelly was going to be the prime minister. (laughs) Yeah, well, exactly. You make a very good point, Matt. But my point is that you've got UAP and the Greens saying, "Oh, well, we've got ideas to raise money," and it was it was all about resources tax and taxing super rich companies. Now, I'm not saying they were good ideas. Ideas. What I am saying is that there was stony silence when it came to the mainstream parties, Liberals and, and, and Labor, the people who will, who will actually end up running the country. None of them wanted to have a serious discussion about tax. And when the mainstream parties who will end up running the country won't address the issue, you're going to get people who are more on the extremes who are who are going to come up with their ideas. This country desperately needs the guys who are going to end up running the place, Liberal, Labor, Coalition Partner, Nationals, to address the issue of tax. Have we got a spending problem? Have we got a revenue problem? Well, the, the commitments on spending are really easy to make. We had a lady come through our studio earlier this week, an economist with CEDA, Committee for Economic Development Australia, very well-respected think tank. She said, we've got 360,000 people working in aged care right now. We need an extra 110,000 by, I think it was the end of this decade. And all of them, all of them, that's 470,000 people, need a 25% increase in their pay. It's got to come from the taxpayer. So, okay, how are you going to pay for that, guys? So people have made promises. We know the need is there. Is it is it aged care? Is it the NDIS? Is it another batch of, of, of submarines, defence spending? We, we know the whole lot of spending promises have been made and are, and are needed in cases like uh, aged care. But who in the mainstream is coming up with ideas? And, and they just don't want to talk about it. Yeah, I think, well, it's certainly true. We'll see whether any bravery creeps in in the 12 months or so ahead after that. I think, as uh, Matt mentions, you get too close to the next election. A couple of quick questions that I'll whip through here. Herb asks, why government's unwilling to look at increasing the tax-free threshold as a tax cut uh, in parallel to moving tax rates? I would have thought that would make sense to economic stimulus. Well, uh, Herb, the issue there, if you increase the tax-free threshold everyone paying income tax gets a benefit, not just those on the lowest income. So at the moment, none of us pay income on the first $18,200 that we earn. That's the tax-free threshold. And if you increase that to say 20 or 25 grand, even the highest income earners get the benefit from that. Now, yes, that injects economic stimulus, but that's not what the government wants to do right now, not when inflation is the big problem. So uh, that's that's why they're not uh, touching that. Dave asks, for years now, governments of all political persuasions, both state and federal, have been borrowing many billions of dollars. Simple question, who lends the money? 
Uh, again, that's pretty rich straightforward. People. Yeah, <laughs> rich people. Look, whoever buys government bonds, banks, financial institutions, super funds, private investors as well. Matt, I'm not sure if you bought many government bonds recently. No, I can't say I've got many on on my books, but yeah, I guess that the issue here is that uh, you know it's uh, the, the the risk for these sort of investors when they're buying a government bond is pretty low because generally a government's good for it in the end, even if it's going to be a long way yep. down the track. So that's why you have these these government bonds. I was looking into this this morning. It's interesting to see that not only does the Reserve Bank of Australia buy Australian government bonds, but also a couple of other central banks around the world buy Australian government bonds as well. I think I read the Federal Reserve in the US, uh, the central. Bank of Japan, I think, have also got some government bonds there. And then it's also super funds and insurance funds who, who invest their members' money in that as well. It's a, it's a safe place to put your money, uh, as you mentioned there. Wendy asks back on the tax cuts, why doesn't the government pass legislation to postpone the Stage 3 tax cuts for 12 months? Then they can take the case for abandoning them to the election if it's still considered necessary. This would also force the Libs to take a clear position on why they should be kept. And that way, Albanese won't be breaking a promise. Well, Wendy, they could do that. But uh, David, it would still be a broken promise, though, technically, wouldn't it? It, Well, exactly. And a promise is a promise is a promise. And look, some people would say it, it, it doesn't matter. The, the circumstances have changed. Other people would say, look, hang on. Are you seriously saying that six months ago you, you thought the world was going to have an economy that wasn't under threat? Um, Ukraine had, al- had already been invaded by Russia. We were still in a pandemic. We, we couldn't tell which, which wave of COVID would hit us next. And yet these promises were made. It's, it's like w- how we began this conversation talking about power prices. Promises were made knowing how volatile the markets can be, knowing how volatile the world economy can be. Promises were made to cut power bills by three, by almost $300. It's as though we, we have one MP before the election and another MP after the election. And you know what? We're not stupid. Yeah, people can see through that. Look, but it brings us to a question, uh, and this will be the final one, from Julie. And Julie, I guess, is having a bit of a go at some of us in the media as well here. Julie says, I'm so tired of the will-they-won't-they reporting only because the emphasis is on the political ramifications of such a decision. She's talking about stage three tax cuts. Julie says, I do understand there are certain outlets that will choose to jump on the weaponising bandwagon for their own political agendas, but would have thought that legitimate news reporting would not be so excited to discuss this aspect. Surely reporting should be on the pros and cons of either decision, not what Dutton will do with this or what will the public think about a broken promise. Matt, is the media generally, and you know, I'll include us in that too, focused on the impact of breaking a promise rather than the impact on the budget of keeping or ditching or amending stage three tax cuts? I think certainly some media outlets would be. I would also argue, though, that I think both of those issues sort of run in parallel because it's a sort of chicken or egg argument. You're having the discussion around whether or not Australia can afford to have these tax cuts and therefore that leads into this discussion around whether it's a broken promise or not. I think what What's fair to say around how this has played out over the last couple of weeks is that repeatedly you had Labor frontbenchers being asked whether or not they would scrap or tweak or cap or whatever verb you want to use there, what they would do with these stage three income tax cuts, which aren't due to come in until 2024. And rather than 
saying simple no, the answer that was repeatedly trotted out was our position has not changed. Now, you can drive a B-double through that definition because it means that these discussions are underway. And to be fair, you would expect these discussions to be underway because any government worth its salt needs to be constantly looking at this situation. But it was an exercise in political kite flying because it allowed the government to read the mood, to sort of bait, I guess, the coalition, get a sense of what their attack lines would be and whether or not it needed to have any sort of decision made before the October 25 budget. Jim Chalmers says he doesn't need to make a decision now because these don't come in until 2024. There are still a number of budgets ahead of that, so there are no changes now. He's now used that two-letter word, no, in response to direct questions while in Washington, D.C., but it doesn't mean that this is off the agenda into the future. Now, how that plays into the discussion around broken promises, well, that's what the coalition put forward there, and quite frankly, that is probably one of the reasons why we saw that political kite-flying exercise. It gets a read of not just the political attack from the political opponents, but also the mood of the of the public. And it is going to be a much more difficult situation to, to formulate that messaging, to get that uh, message to the public right about if these tax cuts do need to be scrapped or tweaked or capped or whatever, how you actually sell that to the public. Most Australians, you would think, would be open to discussing the, the sort of issue. However, you need to get that messaging right so that they can understand it, because politics Politicians aren't the most popular at the best of times, and a broken promise is a broken yeah. promise. Yeah, dare I say it. I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was a little bit of focus group research that might have gone on during that kite-flying exercise uh, as well. Oh, well, Julie says she doesn't want people talking about broken promises. Maybe that's because that promise didn't mean anything to Julie. But if there's a promise that does mean something to Julie, she would like us to t- be talking about it being broken. Julie, that promise is important to some people. You're absolutely right. The bigger debate on, on where we should be going in terms of tax couldn't agree with you more. And, and wouldn't I love to see both the major parties come to the table and actually produce something apart from just spending promises. But Julie, that promise is important to some people and and one day there will be a promise that that you care about. Yeah, well said. Look, we will leave it there, David, Matt. Great to talk to you both. Thanks for tackling all those terrific questions. A pleasure. Thank you, David. And thanks to our producers, Matt Bevan, Sam Dunn and Robin Powell. Now, please keep sending in your questions. We love to get them. You can send them via the ABC Listen app or you can send them on an email. The address is back to you, podcast at abc.net.au. We'll be back in your feed next Friday. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.